This is OBS Radio, a service of OBS International, a division of Greater Works Business Services. Good evening. After the events of the last two weeks, you may be expecting a lesson on the flood tonight, um, but this will not be a lesson on the flood. I found out about this about three hours ago, so no time for a flood lesson. If I'd been thinking, I could have solved that, though, by asking Adam to do the scripture reading, because when Adam was three or four, he knew a lot of Bible stories, but when you ask him to tell you one, he would always start out the same way. There was a flood, and then he would tell you whatever the story about Daniel or whoever, and it always started out the same. This is not a lesson about the flood. Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. One of the most wonderful and remarkable things we learn about Jesus from the gospel accounts is the gentleness with which he dealt with people. Isaiah had foretold this of him long before. In Isaiah 42, 2 and 3, He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. The gentleness of Christ. Jesus saw possibilities of goodness in people where none others did. And one thing we know for certain is that Jesus never made any mistake in how he dealt with people. Whether he was speaking to a multitude or speaking to an individual, Jesus always said just the right thing. And he always said it in just the right manner. He always took just the right approach with people. He always said whatever was most likely to do good for someone. He always said whatever was most likely to draw out whatever good was in his listeners. He made people want to be better people, and he still does that today. Yet, at least when viewed at the surface, there seems to be one exception with how Jesus dealt with people. And it's more remarkable from the fact that it stands out in such an extraordinary contrast with all the other examples that we have in Scripture of how Jesus dealt with people. Jesus' language to the Pharisees and their cohorts, the scribes, is unlike his language to all the others that he talked to. In fact, all you have to do is read Matthew 23 to see that, to see that difference. For example, starting in verse 27 of that chapter. It's true of the entire chapter, but if we start in verse 27, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye are likened to whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, ye also appear outwardly righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! Because you build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchres of the righteous, and say, If we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Wherefore, ye be witnesses unto yourselves, that you are the children of them which killed the prophets. Fill ye up, then, the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you generation of vipers. How can you escape the damnation of hell? That chapter has been called the rolling thunder of God's wrath, and that's not the only example of that we see in the Gospels. Jesus' language to the Pharisees stands alone, it seems. It's without parallel. To the Pharisees, Jesus' language was a stern and terrible denunciation. It is not seen that to them Jesus spoke words that would likely lead them on or draw them out unto himself. 
Jesus never said a word even to the most degraded sinner that would lead them to despise themselves or cause them to believe that he despised them. But to the Pharisees, at least on the surface, it seems that he does. Jesus uses words that neither the Pharisees nor the multitudes that heard him could ever possibly misunderstand. Serpents, he calls them, generation of vipers. You shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, he says to them. You neither go in yourself, nor do you suffer others to go in. You compass sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he's made, you make him twofold the child of hell that you are, he says to them. How strange those words sound when compared with the words that Jesus spoke to the woman taken in adultery. How strange those words sound when compared to the words Jesus spoke to the woman of Samaria who was living in sin, or with the words he spoke to the rich young ruler who turned his back on Christ. Jesus did not even speak to Satan or the unclean spirits in the way he spoke to the Pharisees. Yet as strange as his words sound to us, we who know something about the real character of the Pharisees, they must have sounded far stranger and in fact even incomprehensible to those in the first century who first heard them. We need to remember that we know the Pharisees as they have been exposed to us through the word. That revelation has forever made to us, the Pharisees, a term of derision, so much so that we're apt to imagine that the word Pharisee has always been a term of derision, but that's just not the case. Instead, Pharisee, at the time these words were spoken, meant an honored and respected person. As Jesus told the Pharisees, you have your reward, and that reward was the praise of men. And men did praise them in that day. In their day, the Pharisees were seen as the strength of the synagogue. They were seen as dependable, never failing, faithful in worship, fasting, giving. Yet it was of such men as these, highly respected and strictly religious, that Jesus asked, how can you escape the damnation of hell? It was these men that Jesus singled out for such denunciation. No wonder that his language seemed incomprehensible to those who first heard it. Wouldn't we expect Jesus to publicly denounce those whose sins were open and flagrant and were recognized as such by all? Who would expect him instead, instead to denounce such men of religious character, at least as viewed by other men, men who seem to stand so high? To which group would we expect Jesus to say, come unto me and I will give you rest? Which group would we expect him to call a generation of vipers? So we're faced with a question, why? Why does Jesus direct towards this class alone? Of all those he dealt with on earth, words so strangely different from how he dealt with others. Well, Jesus tells us himself. Or rather, Jesus points out enough to us to allow us to understand the difference. And we find that in Luke chapter 18. Look at verse 9. There we find the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. Listen as I read. And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, 
the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes into heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased. He that humbleth himself shall be exalted. The first thing we see in this parable is that Jesus was comparing the Pharisees with the publicans. Well, who were the publicans? Well, a publican was a man who practically had no character to lose. He was a social outcast. He was looked upon as being so bad that no one expected anything of him. Who could ever dream of comparing two such classes of men, the most religious with, with, with the most immoral? They stood upon two wholly different planes. There seemed to be no point in which they, they could be compared, where they could ever meet to be compared. Men whose life and interests were centered around sacred things and men who had sold their souls for money. But Jesus does compare them. And incredibly, his judgment is in favor of the publican. The publican shall enter into the kingdom of God before you, he says in Matthew 21, speaking to the Pharisees and the scribes. Well, the second thing we see in this parable is that Jesus allows us to see these two classes of men at their prayers. We see them as they're speaking to God. If you want to know what a person is really like, you need to see into his soul as he stands before God. We know little about Jacob's public life that would ever allow us to understand how someone so seemingly weak could be so honored by God. But when we see Jacob's inner life for prayer, then we understand it. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies of all, and of all the truth which thou hast showed unto thy servant, Jacob prayed in Genesis 32, verse 10. It's hard for us to understand the language that God uses about David when we see his public life. But once again, when we see David's prayers, we understand it. Against thee, thee only have I sinned, he prays in Psalm 51. So if we really want to understand the Pharisee and the publican, we need to see them in prayer. And that's exactly how Jesus shows them to us. What were those Pharisees praying for in the temple courts and in the corners of the streets? What great virtues were they striving after? What sins were they asking God to forgive? Well, Jesus lifts the curtain and discloses that to us. This is what these Pharisees were, were saying. This is what they were think, thinking. God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And that was it. No matter how lengthy their prayers were, no matter how repetitive their prayers may have been, and we know they were both lengthy and repetitive, it all boiled down to that. That was the substance of their prayers to God. The Pharisees had no sense of sin. They had nothing to repent of. They uttered no cry for pardon. 
This Pharisee accused himself of no fault, either great or small. Nothing left undone that he should have done. Nothing that he had done that he shouldn't have done. He was perfectly satisfied with himself. And he supposed that God must also be perfectly satisfied with him. When Isaiah saw the vision of God in the temple, he trembled with fear and cried, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. When Peter witnessed the Lord's miraculous power, he cried, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. But the Pharisee had no such fear. He was more at ease with God Almighty than was Isaiah or Peter. How could the Pharisee repent? He was not conscious of anything that he had done that needed repentance. How could the Pharisee grow? He was not conscious of any higher standard of him that was required of him, something that he had not already reached. What need had the Pharisee of God's mercy or of God's grace? He imagined he was as pleasant an object for the eye of God to behold as he was for his own eye to behold each day in the mirror. How could the mind of the Pharisee ever grasp the idea of a savior, of a redeemer? He was not conscious of a need for either. It's a dangerous state when one has no standard of goodness, when one lives as the publicans and harlots, but it is far more dangerous when one sets oneself a very low standard and then is content to live up to it, aiming for nothing higher. That's what the Pharisees had done. As long as there is a sting of conscience, as long as there is a voice of self-condemnation, there's a hope for recovery, for growth. But the Pharisee had none of that. When a person's conscience only echoes the vain approval of their own self-deceit, then it's impossible for that person's soul to ever be roused. There's nothing to appeal to in the soul of such a person. It's already attained its ideal. It's haunted by no sense of incompleteness. It's haunted by no sense of dissatisfaction with itself. It can smile approval at the wrath of God against sin, for it is the sin of others, not its own sin. Spiritually, that soul has nothing to regret, nothing to desire. There are no restless longings in such a soul, no aims beyond its reach. It's attained the serenity of an undisturbed peace. It's already reached its goal, and it's looking down upon the restless, struggling world beneath it with a dull smile of self-approval. It thanks God that it is not like other men are. And that's what the Pharisees were like. But even that was not the depth of their sin. We need to look a bit further to see how bad they really were. There's one other instance on record of a man having attained to this same condition of peace and inward contentment, and only one. In all the life of Christ, there never once appears the slightest trace of a consciousness of failure, because there could not have been, because he failed in nothing. We are admitted again and again to witness Jesus' most intimate communion in prayers with God the Father, from God the Son, and yet never once do we ever find as much as a hint of his own imperfection, nor could we ever, because he had no imperfection. Never once do we hear from Jesus a prayer for forgiveness, 
Never once do we hear from Jesus a cry for deliverance from sin. In Jesus, we find only the most calm, serene, unbroken self-approval. Jesus and the Pharisees are alike in this. They have both realized their ideals, and they are both at rest. And perhaps the greatest sin of the Pharisees was that he had put himself in the place of the Son of God. The Pharisees wanted the people to see themselves rather than to see Jesus as the perfect example of moral purity. They wanted the people to take their eyes off of Jesus and instead look at themselves. So then returning to our original question, why? Why did Jesus direct such harsh denunciation toward the Pharisees? Was it because Jesus did not love the Pharisees? We know that is not the reason. Jesus' presence on earth was because of God's love for the entire world, because of his love for the entire world, and that included every Pharisee who'd ever lived, John 3.16. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, and that included every Pharisee who'd ever lived. We read a portion of Matthew 23 earlier. If you keep reading in that chapter, here's what you'll find in verse 37. How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and you would not. Jesus loved the Pharisees. Jesus died for the Pharisees. From the cross, Jesus prayed to God for their forgiveness. One thing we know with certainty is that Jesus' response to the Pharisees was not motivated by his hatred of them. Instead, it was motivated by his love for them and by his concern for their eternal welfare. We know that with certainty. So why not just instead tell them to go and sin no more, as he told so many others? And the answer is because they didn't know they had sinned. They thought Jesus was the sinner. How can you escape the damnation of hell, he asked them. Well, how indeed when they have no consciousness of their own sin? How indeed when they considered themselves more pure in the eyes of God than God's own Son? Jesus knew, he knew that the Pharisees would be immune to the appeals that would melt the heart of other people. They were, in truth, not like other men, as they said, as the Pharisees boasted in the temple. They were, in fact, in a much more hopelessly irreclaimable position than other men. They were in so much more danger than other men. They were thanking God for things of which they ought to have been ashamed. They had tried to push Jesus aside to put themselves in the favored position that Jesus alone could occupy with God the Father. The Pharisee believed that if God were to speak directly to him, God would say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Some of the Pharisees had even witnessed the miracles of Christ on earth and yet had attributed them to Satan, something that Jesus told us in Mark 3 was not forgivable. They were as far from the kingdom as anyone could be, and they needed a harsh message from Jesus to wake them up from their spiritual stupor. And sadly, that was not enough for many of them, perhaps even most of them. But as always, Jesus told them exactly what they needed to hear. And Jesus told them what they needed to hear in the manner that was most likely to cause them to recognize their true condition. Jesus was trying to wake them up. And why was he, do, he doing that? 
He was doing that because he loved them. It was not his will that any should perish, and that included the Pharisees. You know, the world today calls us unloving if we tell people they're living contrary to the word of God. But as usual, the world is wrong. When the world is contrary to the word, the world is always wrong. The world will never win that contest, no matter how many votes it has on its side. The very worst thing we can do to anyone is to lead that let person to believe they're right with God when they're not right with God. And Jesus never did that with anybody. The first step to loving our enemies is to make sure they understand their condition apart from Christ. That's the most loving thing we can do for them. Now let's look for a moment at the despised publican, the one the Pharisee boasted he was not like. It's true that the Pharisee was not like this publican. He was probably not so bad in the sense that he'd never done the things that caused this publican to be so despised by the people. But there was a key difference between them, wasn't there? The publican was capable of rising. The Pharisee was not. The publican knew his condition. The Pharisee did not. And as with the Pharisee, Jesus reveals to us the inner life of this despised publican, his life of prayer. Standing afar off, he would not lift up so much as his eyes to heaven, but he smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The publican's life had been very bad. His life had been driven by the root of all evil, the love of money. And that love had driven him to dishonesty. It had driven him to treachery against his own people. From a human point of view, his case, his case seemed hopeless. But as he stands before God, we see three redeeming qualities in this publican. Three qualities that were entirely absent in the Pharisee. This publican knew his condition. There was no self-deception with this publican. He called himself by his proper name, a sinner. Second, this publican wanted to be different. This publican wanted to change. Unlike the Pharisee, this publican was dissatisfied with himself and miserable in his sins, and he desperately wanted to change. And third, this publican turned to God for help. Turned to God for help. And from such a cry for mercy, we know that God will not turn away. It was for such that Jesus came down to this earth to seek and to save the lost. And if that is your cry tonight, then the good news of the gospel is that you can leave here in a right relationship with God. If you obey the gospel of Jesus Christ by believing in him, by repenting of your sins, by confessing his name before men and then being baptized for the remission of your sins, God will add you to the body of the saved, the body of his son, to the church. And if you've wandered away, Jesus is watching for you to return. And he's been watching and waiting for you to return from the very moment that you wandered away. He's looking now for you to return, and the angels will rejoice when you do so. If we can help in any way, please come while we stand and while we sing. Open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. Got a message tonight about 
fakes, frauds, and Pharisees. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees. Matthew chapter 15. Then came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem, saying, Why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. But he answered and said unto them, Why do ye also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor thy father and mother, and he that curseth father or mother, let him die the death. But ye say, Whosoever shall say to his father or his mother, It is a gift, by whatsoever thou might be profited by me, and honor not his father or his mother, he shall be free. Thus have ye made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. Ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Turn over to Luke chapter 12, please. In Luke chapter 12, verse 1. In the meantime, there were gathered together an innumerable multitude of people, insomuch that they trod one upon another. He began to say to his disciples, first of all, Beware ye of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. For there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, neither hid that shall not be known. We'll come back to these verses here shortly. We're going through the book of Hebrews here with Brother Jade, and we'll soon be in chapters 5 and 6, where we'll see that we're not to remain spiritual babies. We're to grow up in the faith. We're not to be immature. We're to grow up in Christ and go on to maturity. In Hebrews chapter 5, and verse 12, For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk, and not of strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. And in chapter 6, verse 1, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on to perfection. That means maturity, completion. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, doctrine of baptisms and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. See, at some point in our Christian walk, we're supposed to leave the baby food behind and go on to maturity. Some time back, I preached a message on spiritual babies, and I gave seven points of self-examination to help us know if we are spiritual babies. Number one is that spiritual babies walk in the flesh rather than the spirit. Babies like to play in the dirt, and they can't keep themselves clean. In other words, spiritual babies think it's okay to play around with sin. They can't get victory over the sin in their life. They walk in the flesh rather than the spirit. Number two, spiritual babies become jealous over the success of others. Number three was that spiritual babies often find themselves fighting with other Christians. Spiritually immature. Fight with other Christians. Like kids do. Sibling rivalry. Number four is spiritual babies follow men rather than following Christ and His Word. They follow men rather than Christ and His Word. Number six, you know that you're a spiritual baby if you're easily offended. 
And you know that you're a spiritual baby if you're never satisfied. You always need more. More food. You can't feed yourself. Coming back to number five in that list was that you are shallow in your understanding of the Scriptures. A spiritual baby is, under, is shallow in his understanding of the Scriptures. One of the most important aspects of living the Christian life and growing to maturity is learning to walk not only in humility, but also in balance. Balance. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14, Paul writes, "...of these things put them in remembrance." charging them before the Lord that they strive not about words to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. When Paul says, rightly dividing the word of truth... Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That phrase, rightly dividing the word of truth, means two things. First of all, the word dividing does mean to separate. And we are to elevate, we are to separate God's word above the teachings and doctrines of men. We are to divide or separate God's word in verse 15 from the words to no profit in verse 14. And from the profane and vain babblings of verse 16. We're to separate God's word and put it up on a pedestal. We're to heed God's word rather than the, than the teachings and doctrines of men. Is what Paul's saying there. But also I do believe that rightly dividing the word of truth means to walk in balance. In balance. We have to balance the whole counsel of God. Even the parts that don't jive with our preferred doctrine sometimes. To arrive at proper doctrinal positions. We have to walk in balance. So failing to rightly divide the word of truth sometimes can result in the wrongly dividing of Christians. Instead, Christians can always find some areas of doctrine to disagree about. Whether it's sovereign election versus free will, eschatological positions, Sunday versus Sabbath, liberty versus holiness. We've been having some discussion about who are the sons of God in Genesis and all that. Uh, many times uh, we can disagree about questionable practices. We may disagree about what is sin and what is not. We may disagree about where we do have liberty and where we, where we draw the line. We may draw the line in different places. On one extreme, there's carnal Christians. And there are some of those, by the way, carnal Christians who misunderstand God's grace. And who want to take a liberal view of the Scriptures to justify licentiousness and unrepentant carnality. They deceive themselves, by the way. They will reap what they sow. Paul says, Be not deceived, in Galatians 6. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. In the other extreme, there are some immature Christians uh, whose commendable zeal is unfortunately surpassed by their ignorance of God's Word. And they gravitate towards legalistic doctrine that results in bondage to unbiblical rules and pharisaical standards, which is a, truly a destructive leaven that was most despised by the Lord Jesus. And it was resisted and rebuked by Christ during His earthly ministry. Some people put themselves under bondage, but the, and then they also want everyone else to be in that same bondage as well. They do so to appear holier than thou and more righteous than others. But this is nothing other than Phariseeism, and it's a mark 
Phariseeism is actually a mark of spiritual immaturity, of being a spiritual baby. Phariseeism is a mark of spiritual immaturity. So in Matthew chapter 16, verse 6, the Lord Jesus did not get angry at the harlots and the publicans. By the way, He got angry with the Pharisees. He said, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. That word hypocrisy is a transliteration of the Greek word hypocrisis, which means acting under a feigned part or deceit. Hypocrites are play actors on a stage. They're fakes and they're frauds. They put on a show to appear righteous and holy, but inside they may be far more evil than those that they look down upon or condemn. One thing is very clear from a reading of the Gospel accounts of the life of Jesus. The one thing in particular that Christ hated the most was hypocrisy and fraud and the fakery of the Pharisees. It's the one thing that he despised and got angry about. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Having their conscience seared with a hot iron. God hates fakes. Hates fakery and fraud. Play acting. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies, play acting and envies and all evil speakings as newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. In Matthew chapter 21, we see Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He presents himself to Israel as the Messiah. And he spent the next few days, for the most part, in the temple courtyard. And he had several discourses with the multitudes gathered at Jerusalem for Passover. He also had several discourses with the Sadducees and the Pharisees, both of whom rejected him and tried over the next couple of days to entrap him. So they would have a cause to accuse him before Pilate. And one of Jesus' most scathing discourses with the Pharisees is recorded in Matthew chapter 23. Please turn there, Matthew 23. Matthew 23, verse 1. Then spake Jesus to the multitude and to his disciples. Not just to the multitudes, by the way. Sometimes his disciples were just as gullible as the multitudes were. Verse 2, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Which, by the way, is a reference to the fact that the scribes and the Pharisees comprise the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, as public teachers and interpreters of the Mosaic law, they occupied the seat of ecclesiastical government in Israel. The law of Moses being, of course, the municipal law of the state. They were as judges or a bench of justices. Therefore, they sat in Moses' seat. They were the judges of Israel. They, they knew the law. He said in verse 3, All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do. But do not ye after their works, for they say and do not. They do preach the right things, but they do the opposite of what they preach. For they bind heavy burdens, verse 4, and grievous to be borne, and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. Pharisees love to put others in bondage to man-made rules and standards, putting others in fear of condemnation, just to delight in controlling others. Verse 5, but all their works they do, but all their works they do for to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments 
And love the uppermost room at feasts and the chief seats in the synagogues and greetings in the markets and be called a man rabbi, rabbi. Pharisees always have ulterior motives behind their hypocrisy. They love the attention of men and that's what they crave. They much rather have the praise of men than the praise of God. Jesus said they love the uppermost room at the feast and the chief seats in the synagogues and greetings in the markets be called a man rabbi. Rabbi, their ulterior motive is always to seek praise from men rather than from God. Some Pharisees, by the way, spend half their time praising themselves to convince others of how great they are. Every Pharisee that I've ever met, and I've met a few, was consumed with pride and self-exaltation. Wanted to be perceived as a spiritual superman. There are no supermen. Matthew chapter 27, verse 17 to 18 says that Pilate knew that the Pharisees had delivered Jesus to him out of their envy. They wanted the crowds to follow them, not Jesus. That's why they turned Jesus over to them, to be crucified, out of envy. Because all the crowds were following him, and they were envious of that. They wanted the crowds to follow them. By the way, Pharisees in the church today see strong Christians who know their Bibles as a threat. Sometimes they go about to separate them or isolate them. Or just credit them in their testimony. Verse 13, But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For you neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye can pass sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he is made, you make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. You know, I have to say this. When I read this verse, I can't help but be reminded of the easy believism message, gospel of the Hiles cult. Get folks to just pray a sinner's prayer. Just raise your hand for salvation while everyone has their eyes closed. So we can play our numbers game and add you to our list of converts. It's not true conversion. It's not true conversion. You can pass sea and land to make... One proselyte. When he is made, you make him twofold more a child of hell than yourselves. Verse 23. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You paid the tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have omitted the weightier matters of the law. Judgment, meaning justice, mercy and faith. These ought ye to have done and not to leave the other undone. See, they kept the part that men could see outwardly. They kept the part of the law that men could take outward notice of. But they neglected the matters of the heart. They went to church. They put in their offering. They went out soul winning. But they used their alleged soul winning as a cloak for their sin. Boasting of their soul winning efforts while they hide gross sins in their hearts and personal lives. Verse 24, you blind guides would strain into gnat and swallow a camel. By the way, modern day Pharisees do the same thing. I'll come back to that Verse 25, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. Hypocrites, play actors. They look great on the outside, but inside they're full of sin and wickedness. Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye are like unto whited sepulchres, whitewashed tombstones, 
which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Modern day Pharisees do the same thing. They have an outward show of righteousness. They focus on externals and putting on a show to hide the abominable, wicked sins they commit in secret. They focus on how to dress and how to comb your hair. What color shirt you wear. What kind of cloth your shirt's made out of. It's a sin to have a beard. Or to some it's a sin not to have a beard. Or if you have a beard, it's a sin to trim it. You can't listen to that kind of music. You can't go to movie theater because you have to avoid the appearance of evil. By the way, that's the Pharisees' favorite verse. It allows them to make up their own list of what appears to them to be evil. To put you in bondage to their list of do's and don'ts. He says in verse 28, Even so ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Hypocrisy, actors on a stage. Fakes and frauds. You know, in balancing the Scriptures together, in walking in balance, and in rightly dividing the word of truth, we do want to focus on holiness, and we are to be holy. But we also need to balance this, this issue of Phariseeism and how Jesus got angry at the Pharisees more than He did anything. So it's something that we need to take notice of. Hypocrisy, actors on a stage, fakes and frauds. He says, ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell? The Lord Jesus hates hypocrisy because of the effect that it has on the weak and immature Christians. The classic mark of the Pharisee, several marks, prideful, self-righteous. They always have made up rules and regulations to put others in bondage to. By the way, they always have a reason from the Bible why they say you should obey them. Well, that's worldly by my definition. Their goal is to gain control over others and put them into bondage and to build themselves up in the eyes of others, to draw men after themselves. Turn to Galatians chapter 2. It's always the goal of Pharisees to put others in bondage. Paul talks about Judaizers here in Galatians chapter 2, and he says that because of verse 4, Galatians 2 verse 4, and that because of false brethren, unaware is brought in, who came in privily to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. Pharisees want to put others into bondage. Spy out your liberty, that they might bring us into bondage. To whom we gave place by subjection. No, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. The Lord Jesus did not put up with Pharisees. Neither did Paul, not for an hour. And by the way, neither should we. But I want to repeat that Phariseeism is a mark of spiritual immaturity and weakness. It is not a sign of spiritual strength. Turn to Romans chapter 14. Romans 14. Phariseeism is not a sign of spiritual maturity. It's a sign of weakness and spiritual immaturity. Of ignorance of the Scriptures. Paul says in Romans 14, verse 1, Him that is weak in the faith, receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believeth that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. Now, it doesn't take a Ph.D. in Greek or Hebrew or theology to understand in this context that the weaker brother is the one who believes that some practices are sin when they're not. That's obvious from the context. 
The weaker brother here is the one who believes that something is sin when it's not. And the stronger, more mature brother understands his liberty. Paul's going to say here that the stronger brother ought to be willing to limit his liberty in love on behalf of the weaker brother's weak conscience. He says in verse 3, Let not him that eateth, who understands his liberty, despise him that eateth not. Let not him which eateth not, the weaker brother, judge him that eateth, for God hath received him. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. One man esteemeth one day above another. Another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. Verse 7, For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord. And whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ both died and rose and revived, rose again, that He might be Lord both of the dead and the living. Verse 10, But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it not, thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. So Paul says in verse 13, Let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him that esteemeth or thinks or regards anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, with your liberty, that you're flaunting in his face, now walkest thou not charitably. Destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. If we who understand our liberty flaunt that liberty before the weaker brother, we may entice him to sin. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 8, parallel passage here, But meat commandeth us not to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, neither if we eat not are we the worse. But take heed, lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. And when ye sin so against the brethren, and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. Wherefore, if meat maketh my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh. Since we know that our relationship to God is not affected by whether we eat meat or pork or whatever, it ought not be offensive for the stronger brother, who understands this liberty, to limit himself for the sake of the weaker. If we demand and flaunt our liberty... In one area, the weaker brother may actually be enticed to sin in a much more serious matter, bringing him under the judgment of Christ. In other words, if my brother thinks it's sin for me to eat pork and sees me eating pork, he may be tempted to give in to an area where actually it is sin. He may be enticed to sin in some other area that actually is sin. And that's what Paul's talking about here. So then he says, verse 16, Let not then your good be evil spoken of. Don't let your supposed maturity... Or knowledge be used of the devil for evil. Don't push your liberty to extremes to the point where it weakens the brother's conscience. Paul says in verse 17, 
Romans 14. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. For he that in these things serveth Christ is acceptable to God and approved of men. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace, things wherewith one may edify another. For meat, destroy not the work of God. All things indeed are pure. But it is evil for that man who eateth with offense. It is good neither to eat flesh, nor to drink wine, nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth, or is offended, or is made weak. Hast thou faith? Have it to thyself before God. Happy is he that condemneth not himself in that thing which he alloweth. He that doubteth is damned if he eat, because he eateth not of faith. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. We're to rightly divide the Word of God. We have to walk in balance. On one hand, we are called to holiness. That, can, that cannot be diminished. We, we have been called as Christians to holiness. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 7, For God hath not called us to uncleanness, but to holiness. We are called as Christians to live holy lives. We're called to holiness. Hebrews twelve fourteen says, Follow peace with all men, and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. 2 Corinthians 7, 1 says, Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and the spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. We are called to holiness. A good definition of holiness is in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19 to 21, where Paul says, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are His, and let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. We are to depart from iniquity. Paul says, But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth, and some to honor and some to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified, and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. Set apart for the master's use. Separate from iniquity and sin so you can be used. Set apart to God's work. Not set apart to pharisaical standards and man-made rules. We are called to holiness. But holiness as God defines it. Not as some Pharisee defines it. We're also called to liberty. Galatians 5, verse 1. Paul says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. He's talking about bondage back to the law. Don't go back to the law. Stand fast in that liberty. We've been set free from the law. We're to stand fast. We're not to allow anyone to put us into bondage. Like Paul says, not even for an hour. Legalism. Today's Pharisees say legalism is trying to attain salvation by works. A good definition for legalism is extra-biblical rules and standards used to conform or place others in bondage to one's own personal convictions and misconceived spirituality. That's legalism. Another good definition for legalism in Mark chapter 7. Verse 7, where Jesus said, How be it in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men? For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men as the washing of pots and cups, and many other such things, such like things you do. He said unto them, Full well you reject the commandment of God, that you may keep your own tradition. That is legalism. Setting aside the commandments of God and enforcing the traditions of men. We're called to holiness. But Phariseeism is not holiness. That's not what we're called to. Self-righteousness is not holiness. 
Self-righteous Phariseeism is one of the things that Jesus seemed to hate the most. Be very careful about calling anything sin that God's Word does not call sin. If there's no law, there's no sin. Paul said in Romans chapter 4, verse 15, Because the law worketh wrath, for where no law is, there is no transgression. There has to be a law for there to be a sin. Paul said in Romans 5, verse 13, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Sin is not imputed where there is no law. What I've found in my Christian life, the Pharisees I've come in contact with, is that extra-biblical standards always become double standards of hypocrisy. Extra-biblical standards always become double standards. Those who strain at gnats have always swallowed a bigger camel. Those who insist on focusing on externals and standards and how you dress are always concealing much bigger sins in their own life. Jesus said, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. Beware ye the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Hypocrites are play actors on a stage. They're fakes and frauds. They make clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but within they're full of extortion and excess. In other words, they put on a show to appear righteous and holy, but inside they may be far more evil than those that they look down upon or condemn. The one thing that Christ hated the most was the hypocrisy, the fraud, and the fakery of the Pharisees. And by the way, he hates it now just as much as he did then. He hates it because of the devastating effect that it has on weak and immature Christians. I'm going to quote from Dr. Don Boyce, who's been here to preach at our church, from his book, God is a Right Winger. I've quoted this before. It's a good quote. He says this, I have some friends, great preachers, who preach against television, slacks on women, coffee, etc. And they drip with self-righteousness because of their strong stand for old-time Bible convictions. But it is not old-time Bible convictions. It's old-time legalism. And it is killing many churches and splitting hundreds of others. It is also driving young people out of our churches into the arms of the cults or into a lifetime of carnality and outspoken disgust and dismay toward preachers and anything spiritual. He saw that happen. We saw that happen. We've seen this happen firsthand in this Hiles cult church that we used to attend in Brooksville. That church was pastored by a classic Pharisee. A gnat strainer, weak in the scriptures, focused on externals, standards. All the while, he was having private one-on-one counseling sessions with women in the church and also with young female bus kids, some of whom he molested. That church finally fell apart with many devastated families, teenagers, bus kids, and parents of bus kids that now want nothing to do with Christ or his church. Luke chapter 12, verse 1. Luke 12, verse 1. Jesus said, In the meantime, when they were gathered together, an innumerable multitude of people, innumerable multitude of people, insomuch that they trod one upon another, he began to say unto his disciples, First of all, Beware ye of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And then he said, 
For there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, neither hid that shall not be made known. This will not be known. Pharisees' lies and their fakery and their fraud will always be exposed sooner or later. If you are a Pharisee judging others while trying to conceal the horrible sins in your own life, you can be sure your sin will find you out. To put this where the rubber meets the road, I've got five points tonight in application. First of all, be cautious about judging other Christians in debatable areas of Christian practice. Be cautious about that. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not. Let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth, for God hath received him. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Don't judge other Christians. If you want to judge someone, judge yourself. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 11, For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. If you want to judge somebody, judge yourself. Number two, be cautious about declaring certain practices to be sin that are not sin. Don't just be cautious. Don't do it. If the Bible doesn't say it's sin, don't tell me it's sin. Making up unbiblical rules and regulations may, be, may, by the way, be a far worse sin than the practice that you want to condemn. God says in Revelation 22, Don't add to my word. For I testify to every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. But I have a conviction in this area. Well, your conviction may not be from God. The Judaizers that Paul blasted in Galatians, by the way, had a conviction about circumcision. That was their conviction. Their conviction was not from God. Their conviction was from the devil, from their own flesh. Be cautious about declaring certain practices to be sinned or not. In fact, don't do that. Number three, be even more cautious about claiming liberty in an area that may well lead to sin. We have been called to holiness. And I do believe it's actually better to err on the side of holiness than on the side of liberty. But be sure your demand for liberty is not just trying to justify carnality. Be sure your demand for liberty is not going to be used by Satan to lead a brother into sin. Liberty can be dangerous. Number four, never flaunt a practice that you claim liberty in before a brother who does not share your view. Number five, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees. It's hypocrisy. Make sure that you're not straining at a gnat while having swallowed a camel. Remove the log from your own eye before you examine the splinter in your brother's. Make sure that you're not insisting on some standard to seek approval of men. Beware the living of the Pharisees. It's hypocrisy. That's more I was going to say, but I guess that's about it. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for this message. I just pray, Lord, uh, that we all heard what we needed to hear tonight. I pray that you'd help us to, to grow in the faith, to be mature. Help us, Lord God, to, uh, to put these things into practice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'd like to read the first 12 verses of Matthew 16.
The Pharisees also with the Sadducees came and tempting, desired him that he would show them a sign from heaven. He answered and said unto them, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and lowering. O ye hypocrites, ye can discern the face of the sky, but can ye not discern the signs of the times? A wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given unto it but the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. When his disciples were come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. Then Jesus said unto them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have taken no bread. Which when Jesus perceived, he said unto them, O ye of little faith, why reason ye among yourselves, because ye have brought no bread? Do ye not yet understand, neither remember the five loaves and the five thousand, and how many baskets ye took up? Neither the seven loaves of the four thousand, and how many baskets ye took up? How is it that ye do not understand that I spake it not to you concerning bread, that ye should beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees? Then understood they how that he bade them not beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. Matthew, at this point in his gospel, seems to move from one glorious scene of grace and personal ministry and preaching and teaching with Christ to the, to the confrontation with the religious establishment. The, the intensity of the days becomes more evident to us as we make our way through the gospel. It is apparent that the, ad, that, that the adversarial role these religious leaders are taking is becoming greater. That they stand opposed to him and are seeking opportunities to draw him out of these places of ministry and engage him in a place where they would be able to convict him. And such is the context of our story here that these religious leaders arrive and as the Scriptures tell us, they are seeking to entrap Jesus. There are two things that I would want you to see in this text tonight. The first is the condemnation that Christ brings against these religious hypocrites. And the second is a very strong word of caution that He gives to His disciples concerning the teaching of these hypocrites. When Christ condemns the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and Sadducees, it is something they bring on themselves. Look again at verse 1 and note that it is the Pharisees and Sadducees who are seeking to discredit Christ. The text tells us that they came tempting Him. That word tempted means to try to trap, to attempt to catch in a mistake. One author has noted that it means to bring out something to be used against the one who is being tried or tested. You know, we first saw this thought, this very idea in Matthew's gospel back in chapter four and verse one. Do you remember that context? It is that portion of scripture that tells us Jesus was led of the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. I don't know that Matthew is trying to make a precise point here to, to show the 
origin of the Pharisees and Sadducees, but there is a clear link to be established. They did not come as curious seekers of truth and knowledge. They came as adversaries. In Matthew 12, verse 38, a similar scene had unfolded as the scribes and Pharisees had there asked him to see a sign. And here again, the Pharisees and Sadducees arrived saying to him, show us a sign from heaven. The word sign has appeared in many other places and Jesus has been doing this very kind of thing. The the word for sign that is used here refers to miraculous works, a miracle of divine origin. They are asking him to do something that he has commonly known in the entire area among both Jew and Gentile as performing almost at this point daily. And yet they are not there as those who have not yet had an opportunity to witness firsthand the mighty power and divine uh, miracles of Christ. They are there as those who would stand in opposition. Notice how Jesus describes their request. He explains to them in verses 2, at the beginning of verse 3, that they have enough discernment to read the literal signs in the heavens. The color of sky indicates what kind of weather is approaching. And we have old sayings even to this day that we refer to, almost identical to what Christ says here. And yet notice how he continues through that meteorological proverb, as it were, and goes right to the heart of the issue. He says at the end of verse 3, you hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky, but can you not discern the signs of the times? It should be evident to them what is unfolding in front of them. He calls them hypocrites and uses a word that refers to those who pretend to being something other than what they really are. They're pretenders. They pretend to be religious. Pretend to be among those who seek the Messiah. Pretend to be those who love the Word of God, who love to live life in obedience to God their Father. But they are not of their Father, or they are not of the Father in heaven. They are of their Father, the devil. Jesus is saying in so many words, you act as if you are seeking spiritual truth, but you are not. As one author notes, they are seeking grounds to disbelieve. Grounds to disbelieve. Jesus goes on to call them a wicked and adulterous generation. That word wicked refers to what is morally corrupt. Again, he chooses his words intentionally, not carelessly. And he describes them exactly as they are. They do not believe this. They are offended again by what he says, no doubt. But he speaks truth. As zealous and committed as these religious leaders are, they are morally corrupt in the heart. He also describes them as adulterous. That is a term that he is applying to their spiritual unfaithfulness. We would refer to an adulterer as someone who is unfaithful to his marriage vow, to his marriage covenant and relationship with his spouse. And here the Lord Jesus is saying, you are unfaithful to the God you claim to serve. You're an adulterous generation. Peter uses this same term in 2 Peter 2.14, referring to false teachers as those whose eyes are full of adultery. That is, they are always looking for someone else to commit 
immorality with. And so, in many ways, these Pharisees and Sadducees are always looking about for those that they may commit their own spiritual unfaithfulness with. The religion they practice is a form of spiritual infidelity. They are actually engaging in a spiritual relationship with religious partners other than the one true God. And notice the reply Jesus gives to their request. He says in verse 4, A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. There shall no sign be given unto you. No miraculous sign is about to unfold here at this moment to fuel your fires of unbelief. Some might say, why wouldn't Jesus be willing to perform a miraculous work? Perhaps if He had done something so magnificent, they would have had no alternative but to believe. No, not at this point. They've had multiple opportunities to date. They did not come even as those who are riding the fence. Having seen, not sure what to believe, having struggled with their own upbringing, now saying if we could have one definitive work, perhaps we would believe. I also think of what John has recorded in his gospel concerning the intention of these gifts or these signs. In John 20, verse 30, the apostle writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these, that is, these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. We've said this multiple times in recent weeks that Jesus is not interested in establishing a sideshow. He's not trying to compete with Ringling Brothers at this point. Never was, never will be. He is seeking, though, to cultivate that seedling faith that rested in many throughout Israel in that day. These are not those who come to Him with small seedling faith saying, Lord, increase our faith. These are those who are testing Him, looking for an opportunity to discredit Him and to disbelieve further in their hearts. These signs are very important. And as one theologian wrote, these signs witness to the presence and power of God In the person of Jesus, we ought to remember from Matthew 11, verse two, when John the Baptist was imprisoned and things were not going as he had preached and expected, he sent word to Christ. Remember, through his disciples, and he asked a very important question. Are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? And you remember how Jesus answered that great saint, that preacher who had committed his life to proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He pointed him right back to the fulfillment of Old Testament Scriptures and he used the signs, the miraculous acts. And he said so sweetly, tell John, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached of them. The miraculous signs become the thing to encourage his faith. And all through Matthew's Gospel we have read, this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. And Matthew is showing to his primarily Jewish audience 
again and again and again that Jesus Christ is the divinely chosen Messiah. He is the anointed one who is the fulfillment of all these Old Testament scriptures. And part of the fulfillment is seen in these miraculous signs. The evidence was clear of his messianic identity. And no sign is given to these Pharisees and Sadducees at this moment because they have already rejected the preceding signs. He says to them, no sign will be given you but the sign of the prophet Jonah. We encountered that not too long ago in chapter 12, verse 39. Jesus gave the same answer to the scribes and Pharisees when they came testing him on a similar occasion. And you remember how we noted that the sign of Jonah is a sign of imminent judgment. And the sign that he refers to is the resurrection. I wonder how some of their hearts must have responded when they found out the tomb was empty. And not only was the tomb empty, but Jesus was being seen and experienced, touched, eaten with, interacted with by hundreds and hundreds. Now, no doubt, many of them remained hardened in their unbelief. You have to wonder what effect the sign of Jonah had upon them, reminding them that imminent judgment was upon them. I pause at this point and wonder what your personal response to God's revealed truth is. Do you look at the Word of God casually, even carelessly? Do you have a take-it-or-leave-it mentality? Or do you come to it as one whose faith, small and fragile as it may be, or whose faith is growing and thriving through an adolescent period or even mature, but do you come to the Word of God recognizing that it is the bread of your soul? Do you come humbly and tenderly saying, Lord, speak to me from Your Word today? Do you sit under preaching services such as this or in the classroom or a Sunday school or even a discipleship class as we offer here and say, Lord, speak to me. Give me words of life. Beloved, God reveals Himself in order that we might believe that He is who He says He is and that He does what He says He will do. God's truth is revealed to people like us in order that we might be changed. And here are religious people who have no desire to change. They want an opportunity to discredit Christ. They want another reason to disbelieve in their hearts. As we press on through this text, we see that Christ cautions the disciples concerning the doctrine of Pharisees and Sadducees. Did you notice at the end of verse 4, the Scriptures tell us that after He spoke to them, it seems very tersely, He left them and departed. He was done with them. He had nothing else to say to them. Nothing else to do. What a fearful thing when the Lord withdraws His presence or access to the truth from us. We take it for granted that we always have access to the Word. We take it for granted that we could read it any time we choose or that we could hear it preached or taught on a regular basis. And yet it is clear that the Word of God is a gracious gift and He does not make it accessible for everyone. Now, it is our task to take it into all the world, 
but some here tonight assume that you will have equal opportunity and access to the truth next week as you have had this week. You see progression here that Jesus' interaction with these religious leaders becomes less and less in His patient explanation, in His opportunity for them to repent. And the harder they become, the fiercer His interaction becomes. I pray it would not be so in your life. What a fearful thing if God should withdraw the influence of His Spirit from your heart and shut down your capacity to read or to hear and understand. Look with me at verse 5. I think this is one of those wonderful moments where you see again the great patience of our Lord in dealing with His disciples and yet you also see His humanity in that there is almost an exasperation at this point that they don't yet get it. And for the Lord, time is growing short. He is on the back side of His time with the disciples. But there's more to this than just a very sweet and even human interaction between this wonderful God-man and His disciples. There is a strong word of caution and warning spoken here concerning the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Look at his words here. He says to them in verse 6, Take heed and beware. To take heed means to take special notice of something and to concern yourself with it. To beware means that you are on your guard against this thing. In this case, an idea. And he says specifically, take heed and beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. I think the Lord is using leaven here to illustrate something that spreads. We've looked at this before in some of the parables. And certainly the the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees is evil in itself. But I think if you will look at this and walk with me through the next few minutes of of exposition, I think you'll recognize that what he is saying, there's something that is not only inherently wrong and evil here, but this could spread even into your own hearts. The disciples completely misunderstand. They are thinking in literal terms. terms. Verse 7 says, they reasoned among themselves saying, it is because we have taken no bread. Isn't that amazing? On the heels of the second mass miraculous feeding. They suddenly think that Jesus is very concerned about the fact that they forgot bread. Maybe they take it as a gentle admonishment or rebuke. You guys forgot bread, but when we get to the other side, make sure you pick up some stuff that is Pharisee free. That's not at all what Jesus is saying, is it? One author writes, did they expect Jesus to be instructing them to bake bread from scratch when they had crossed the lake, but to make sure not to borrow any yeast from the spiritually unclean religious elite? The disciples here appear inordinately dense. And you know what? So am I. And so are you. Even at those great moments where there is all kinds of spiritual work unfolding around us, we just don't get it, do we? We just don't see clearly or understand with the kind of faith and wisdom that we should. The leaven that Jesus speaks of here is not the leaven that they are thinking of. And they get a little too literal with the Word of God. 
And that would be another side trail to take. But you know, you have to read the Bible as it was written. There are a number of Proverbs that if you go practice them literally tonight, you would actually be guilty of violating God's Word. Well, they came to the Word of Christ a little too literally at that moment. They missed the point that Jesus was making. He clarifies that leaven refers to doctrine. Doctrine is the content of what they are teaching. It's the body of what they are teaching. What would be the doctrine of the Pharisees and the doctrine of the Sadducees? Let's take just a moment and, and run through some things and see if we can find some similarities because he puts them all in the same place. The doctrine of the Pharisees is more familiar to us, I believe. They were the ritualists of their day. G. Campbell Morgan writes, they believed in God. They believed in the work of the Holy Spirit. They believed in the essential purity and holiness of God. They believed in the fundamental things. They believed in angels. They believed in the resurrection. They held all the spiritual verities, all the spiritual truths. But they hid them from the people whom they were supposed to teach and lead. They hid the spiritualities underneath the grave clothes of ritualism and tradition. We just encountered this in Matthew 15, verse 9, where the Lord says, In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And remember, we looked at this. They elevate the traditions of their fathers, their grandfathers, the other great rabbis and teachers of Israel past. Elevate all of that to the place of Scripture and at times even elevated above Scripture itself. These are the very kinds of man-made traditions that Paul will warn the church at Colossae concerning and even his good and beloved friend Titus. In Titus 1, 13-14, he says, This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. Now, conversely, The Sadducees were the rationalists of their day. Again, I use Morgan's notes. They did not believe in spirits. They did not believe in angels. They did not believe in resurrection. They denied all the supernatural elements in religion. They made religion a mere ethical code. They declared that a man ought to be true to certain high and noble principles without any aid from an unseen world. When you begin to look at these two groups, here is where their doctrine overlaps, coincides. On the one hand, the Pharisees equate or elevate human tradition with or above divine teaching. They fabricate through their own wisdom a standard, a system to keep. And the Sadducees, denying the supernatural, rely on human reason. And you begin to see the similarities. Both groups intentionally rule Christ out of their lives. The Pharisees do not need Christ because they have their tradition. The Sadducees do not need Christ because they have their ritual. And when you can save yourself by keeping 
Or they have, did I say ritual? They have their reason. And when you can save yourself by ritual, you don't need a savior. And when you can save yourself by reason, you don't need a savior. That is why Jesus Christ makes them so angry, because he kicks the props out from both of these systems and says, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Believe on me. I have the words of eternal life. And the godlessness of their hearts shows itself nowhere more clearly than in what another author describes as this toxic cynicism. And I think that gets to the heart of the leaven Jesus warns his disciples away from. A toxic cynicism. An attitude that says, this could not be true. It's not true for the one side because their ritual is too important to them. It's not true for the other side because their reason makes too much sense to them. And I wonder if we are not just as pharisaical in some regards and if I can even coin this term, sadduceical in other ways. I wonder if we are not like the Pharisees when we elevate the activity of Bible reading to the status of Savior. The activity of prayer to the status of that Christ alone deserves. If I were to ask you the question, does Bible reading save or does prayer save? How would you answer that? I, if I were asking myself, and I've had a little time to have this conversation with myself, would come back and say, well, what do you mean? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. That's not the kind of reading I'm speaking of. You see, the Pharisees read their Bibles. But that kind of Bible reading was condemnable. Why? Because they did not search the Scriptures for a Savior. They made the mistake, the fatal mistake of thinking that somehow God was appeased, their righteousness was obtained by their reading. Does prayer save? If it's the prayer of Pharisees, it does not save. Why? Because it focuses on its self-righteousness and says things like this, Lord, I thank You that I am not as other men and then proceeds to rehearse all of its own righteousness in the presence of God. That is as filthy rags to the Lord. That kind of prayer does not save. Now, Bible reading and prayer are important means of grace, but they are no substitute for Jesus Christ and cannot be. Jesus Christ alone is the Savior of the world. He has called us not to a ritual of Bible reading. He has called us to nourish our souls on the bread of life. Dare I say this? But in this context, I think I can. God doesn't care how many minutes a day you spend reading your Bible. He cares eternally how much effort and sincerity goes into finding Christ as you come to the Word. That's why when you genuinely have but five or ten minutes and yet you come and say, Lord, I need something because I am in the heat of spiritual warfare and battle today. Or you have called me to a time of intense service and I honestly do not have the opportunity to spend 30, 45 minutes, an hour or more in Bible reading. Please give it to me in a hurry. 
He blesses that. Now, I would not want to create a false notion that you could be fine just going day after day reading your word, reading the word for five or ten minutes. That's like eating two or three bites of your cereal in the morning and then going the rest of the day. You can make it for a while, but that's not good for you. Sooner or later, you'll wear out. Some of you are spiritually malnourished tonight just because you don't come to the Word. But you know what? Others of you are malnourished even though you've spent hours in Bible reading because you read the Bible like a Pharisee. Prayer is a wonderful means of grace. Communion with God, it's something that we do to praise, to confess our sins, to petition Him, to commune with Him. But if you pray as a Pharisee, it's deadly. What about the Sadducees? One of the things that struck me in my study this week is how they were a very powerful group who denied so many things that we hold as dear, and yet it all started, apparently, when they made religion a mere ethical code, as G. Campbell Morgan notes. And we border on this kind of reasoning when, again, we take the Word of God as little more than an ethical code. Beloved, the Bible is far more than a companion text to William's book, William Bennett's book of moral virtues, a treasury of great moral stories. That is not what the Bible is. Now, it's a treasury of great stories, but it is first and foremost a treasury of Christ and His story of creation and redemption. Jesus said very plainly, Moses and the prophets speak of Me. He said very simply that in this book you find eternal life, not by simply reading it, but by finding Him. And I wonder how different some of our own households are from some of the great moral efforts that are underway in our day and age. And there are some. Say, what do you mean? Let me give you an example. I found a very helpful resource this way. It raises the question, what can parents do to counter the assault underway in our society and raise moral kids? A timely new book. Building Moral Intelligence, the seven essential virtues that teach kids to do the right thing, offers answers. The best way to help kids overcome negative pressures and act right, even in these morally troubling times, is to boost their moral IQ. How do we do that? Here are some suggestions the author makes. Number one, identify the virtues you want most for your child. Number two, accentuate a virtue each month. Research says it takes at least three weeks to learn a new behavior, and the same premise applies to cementing good moral habits. So select a virtue each month and commit a few minutes each day to helping your child learn it. Step three, expect your child to behave morally. Here's another Subthought under that point. Once your moral expectations are set, you must stick to them and not back down. Many parents post the basic virtuous behaviors they expect in their homes. Step four, tune up the virtue in your own behavior. If 
ask this question at the end of each day. If I were the only example my child has from whom to learn right from wrong, what would he have learned today? Step five, describe the value and meaning of the virtue. For example, hold virtue talks. Deliberately set aside time to talk with your child about the chosen virtue and describe why it's important. You might even show a family video addressing the trait. Pinocchio for conscience. Rudy for perseverance. Charlotte's Web for caring. Someone's going to be upset that I just trashed Charlotte's Web. My beef is not with Charlotte's Web. Or even Pinocchio. Rudy is another story. Hold family virtue read-alouds. Choose a literature selection that embodies the virtue, and some other examples are given. Find articles featuring the virtue. Step six, teach specific behaviors of the virtue. Step seven, reinforce your child's virtuous behaviors. Step eight, find opportunities for your child to practice the virtue. Step nine, find ways to help your child practice using the virtue in the world. The more your child experiences the miracles of when young, the greater the likelihood that she will make moral behaviors a habit for life. Now, when I take issue with this, it would almost sound at first as if I am not for moral training. But do you know what is, is, and I use this word intentionally, do you know what is pernicious about this system? It says nothing of our need of a Savior. I submit that if you do all of these things faithfully and you train up your child with a value system, a moral code, and he or she lives a virtuous life according to these standards and yet does not understand that at the heart level he needs a Savior, you have raised a Sadducee. And and there will burn in him a toxic cynicism that if Jesus Christ himself stood in front of him, having performed miraculous signs and wonders, he would not believe. Why? Because his reason and virtue is his Savior, not Jesus. I cannot help but wonder... If the reason a particular strain of toxic cynicism that smolders in the hearts of many professing Christians of all generations that are alive today may not, in fact, go back to the kind of upbringing that taught them a Christian based system, but did not give them Christ. Beloved, Jesus warns us calls us to guard our hearts against this kind of leaven because its effects are deadly. I pray that we would not be a people who teach and require morality alone, but that we would first teach our children our grandchildren, 
friends that come under our influence that at the heart level we first need a Savior. And once that Savior cleanses the heart, washes us, sanctifies us, justifies us as we looked at in 1 Corinthians 6 this morning, He begins to transform the moral behavior. How do you use the Word of God tonight? Can I give a classic illustration of this or use a classic story from the Old Testament to illustrate exactly what I'm talking about? Beloved, David and Goliath is not primarily a story about good moral character or courage. That story reveals something to us about Christ. It is not as explicitly stated as the New Testament Gospels are. But it is there. And I believe part of the reason God continues to show us even the sinful side of these great human heroes is that He doesn't want us to worship them. David is a great example. There are many virtues about his life that ought to be modeled. Yes, there are even times where we might say, as Paul said, Follow me even as I follow Christ. But do you see how, there, how even there, there is a direct link to Christ? God's Word forces us to acknowledge our need of a Savior and compels us to go find one. So when we find in the Scriptures that Jesus was born and called the Christ, and then as Matthew unfolds for us, proceeds to fulfill scores and scores of Old Testament prophecies that He is the One who alone possesses in Himself the power to heal the blind, the lame, the lepers, the deaf, to raise the dead and preach the Gospel to the poor, who exercises absolute power over demons, who can quiet a raging storm or miraculously feed thousands of people on a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish. We have only one conclusion to reach. Here at last is the Savior I have been looking for. But you know something? If your ritualism or your reason has already saved you, Jesus arrives and He offends you deeply. And you say, who is He to preach and teach like this? We do not need Him. We have our ritual. We have our reason. And yet Jesus does not allow us to live comfortably in our ritual and reason because neither one of those things can save And we look at Him and we see here at last is the Savior of the world. Here at last is the seed of the woman God promised to Adam and Eve after they fell in the garden and ran from Him. Here at last is the covenant son of promise given to the patriarchs. Here is the Savior that you and I need to rescue us from our man-made morality and ethical codes. Here at last is the one who can save us from our vain attempts to self-righteously redeem ourselves. Here is the one who saves us from toxic cynicism. And that is what the Pharisees and Sadducees rejected. But this is exactly what the disciples believed. You know, the preaching that God blessed after Pentecost went far beyond a new kind of morality. The preaching God blessed and empowered by His Spirit was the preaching of Christ crucified and resurrected for sinners like you and me. That's what we're called to believe. That's what we're called to preach. Now, some of you who are headed into teaching and preaching ministries, others of you who carry those right now, it's a good time to evaluate the substance of your pulpit or your classroom. 
If it's only filled with morality, you haven't taken it far enough. But if it's filled with Christ, keep it up. You're on the right track. Parents, it's a good opportunity for us to evaluate. How are we raising our children? When a discipline situation breaks out in the home, how do you talk to your child? Is it merely in terms of moral reform? You know that we don't lie. You know that we don't cheat. You know that we don't hit one another with our fists. Or do you go deeper and say to that child, we need to ask God to give you a new heart. You need to ask God to take that anger out of your soul and put His love in your heart. And more importantly, we need Jesus to save us from the sin. Beloved, God is not waiting for the next William Bennett to arrive on the Sunday school curriculum scene and transform the children of the world through moral virtue. It will never happen. God is calling us to look carefully and to give full attention to what we preach and teach and make it always and exclusively the gospel of the crucified, resurrected King. The difference between the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees and the doctrine of Christ is that one merely calls us to moral reform. The other calls us to repent of our sins and believe in a personal Savior. So we take heed. And we make ourselves aware. And we walk in humble faith in the trail of this great King. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Heavenly Father, it is so easy for us to fall into routines and habits that are not as Christ-centered and biblically consistent as they ought to be. We assume so many things about our Christian lives. We pray that You would be cleansing our hearts and minds of even those hints of pharisaical thinking. Purge us of the Sadducee that lives within. We are always tempted to rest in our ritual or rely upon our reason. But neither one of those can save us. Only Jesus can. And so we pray tonight that You would guard us and protect us and move us in the true way of the kingdom. And I pray that anyone here tonight who may be trusting in his or her own ritual for salvation would see the deadly end of that and turn away from it and turn to this living Savior. And for those who rely upon their reason to save them, oh Lord God, show them mercy to give to them that repentance and faith that saves to the uttermost. We don't want to morph into a false religion 
And so we ask that You would cause us to be faithful to our Savior and to His Word. To love it. To immerse our hearts in it. To practice it. Always repenting. Always believing. Humbling ourselves under Your mighty hand. I wonder if there was someone here tonight who would say, I do not know this great Jesus Christ that you have spoken of tonight, but I see Him in a way I have never seen Him before. And I am one of those who has trusted in the rituals of Christianity. And I have not been trusting in Christ. Or perhaps you would say, I have trusted in reason. Maybe you love the sciences and you love logic and you love to prove things in a laboratory. And you have been dismissing the claims of Jesus Christ and even the miraculous signs that the Bible speaks of. But perhaps tonight the Spirit of God convicted your heart and you recognize that you do not know Him in a saving way. Dear friend, whatever your case is, if you would acknowledge tonight your need of Christ as a Savior, and if you would confess your sinfulness and ask Him to take up residence within your heart to save you, from your sins, He would do that. I wonder if there is someone here tonight who would acknowledge this by the uplifted hand. No one is looking around. If you would acknowledge that and desire that I would pray for you and perhaps even be able to speak with you afterwards, would you just lift your hand and hold it there for a moment and say, please pray for me. I trust in my ritual. I trust in my reason. Tonight I want to trust in Christ. Is that the desire of your heart? <clears throat> Loving Heavenly Father, You see every heart here tonight. And we pray for those in our midst who struggle to believe, whose faith is weak, whose resolve is small, that You would comfort and encourage them. And that the same kind of patience you exercise towards your beloved disciples, even when they didn't get it, that you would exercise toward them. And for those who, like Pharisees or Sadducees, rely on something other than the Savior, I pray that you would gently and sweetly turn their hearts this week before they are hardened in that unbelief. We ask for your blessing. We have begun a new week. We are eager to meet that portion of mercy and grace that you are already preparing for the morning. We do not want to presume upon you that we will have life tomorrow, but even as we close out this day, our faith is in you. We trust in you. And we are eager to see how you will meet us with your goodness and in your greatness in the days that are left in this new week. We commit ourselves to your good hand and ask for your blessing upon us as we go. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please stand with me? Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Good night. This is OBS Radio, a service of OBS International, a division of Greater Works Business Services.
this message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. At the end, we will give information about how to contact us to receive a copy of this or other messages. Well, let's turn to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23, starting at verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Verse 14, which I don't, is it in the ESV? Is there a verse 14 in the ESV? Okay. You don't have, if you have the ESV, you don't see this verse. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers, therefore you'll receive greater condemnation. Woe woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say whoever swears by the temple, that's nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that's nothing, but whoever swears by the offering on it, he's obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering. Therefore, whoever swears by the altar, swears both by the altar and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple, swears both by the temple and by him who dwells within it. Whoever swears by heaven, swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions or matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they're full of robbery or greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the dish, of the cup and of the dish, so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we'd been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Well, (sighs) 
So much for a soft, sissified Jesus. We come to uh, what is one of the, really one of the harshest sections of the entire gospel. Uh, Obviously, what happens in verses 13 through 36, we didn't go all the way through, I'll tell you why in a minute, but it's connected, obviously, to the first 12 verses that we saw last week. Remember, Jesus begins, uh, there's been this series of controversies with the scribes, the Pharisees, and even the Sadducees, so the religious leaders, and Jesus had had one controversy after another after another with them. And then at the beginning of chapter 23, Jesus then begins to actually warn the crowds against the scribes and the Pharisees. He basically says that they have exalted themselves to the seat of Moses, but really, and then I think somewhat sarcastically, he says, make sure you do what they say, but don't do what they do. They're hypocrites. Jesus then explains or unfolds all the ways, not all of the ways, but at least some of the ways that the scribes and the Pharisees were hypocrites. And at the end, then he exhorts his own disciples to a life of servanthood and humility. And it's in light of that call to be servants and to be humble that Jesus then turns around and begins to directly address the scribes and the Pharisees. Remember, he's still in the temple precincts. He's still there with the crowds, his disciples, and no doubt the scribes and the Pharisees still lingering as he was criticizing them. And then there is this this sharp turn in verse 13, but woe to you. Now, there are seven woes. If you count verse 14, there's eight, which actually then ruins the symbolic number seven. There are seven woes, and remember, the woe was a prophetic oracle of doom. Woe was a way of expressing impending judgment. You remember what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 5, after he has seen the Lord high and exalted, lifted up, and the, uh, the seraphim are crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty. And as the train of his robe fills the temple, the foundations of the temple shake, the temple fills with smoke, and Isaiah says, Woe is me. The interesting thing about Isaiah saying that in chapter 6, verse 5 is that five times in Isaiah chapter 5, he'd pronounced an oracle of doom, a woe against the nation Israel. A hundred and twelve times in Old and New Testaments, the word woe is used, and it almost always has the idea of an oracle of judgment and a prediction of condemnation. And so when Jesus uses these seven woes here, he is, uh, he is, as it were, taking up the mantle of the prophets. He's speaking as, as Israel's prophet, the prophet, because he himself is the word incarnate. 
Now, there's seven woes which indicate the idea of completion. In other words, this is really the, 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 the final proclamation against the religious leaders. And in fact, um, seven is, is, is intentional, I think, especially in light of verse 32, which is fill up or literally fulfill then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. And so the sevenfold declaration of woe is a complete declaration. In other words, this is, this is it for the religious leaders. And in fact, what we will end up seeing is that not only is this it for the religious leaders, this is actually it for Jerusalem. Six of the seven woes are addressed to scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. Remember last week we talked about scribes and Pharisees. Remember, scribes were teachers of the law, experts of the law. They could have been priests. They could have been Pharisees. The Pharisees were basically laymen who um, were a part of um, a very zealous religious movement. And in fact, some of the things that Jesus identifies in this very passage were the very things that the Pharisees distinguished themselves with. And so a popular view of the Pharisees would have been actually somewhat favorable because they were earnest, they were, they were zealous in their religion, they were seriously devoted, and the fact is, is that Jesus now is addressing those that the people would have looked up to, both teachers of the law, experts of the law, the scribes and the Pharisees, these are the religious leaders that the people would have, would have really given a sense of allegiance and loyalty to. And what Jesus does in this section is twice calls them blind guides, verses 16 and 24, calls them fools and blind, verse 17, tells them they're blind in verse 19, calls them blind Pharisees in verse 26. Are you getting the, the hint here? They're blind, They're the ones the people look up to. They're the ones that people follow, and yet they themselves are blind. Absolutely no spiritual perception on their part whatsoever. And then to top things off, Jesus makes sure that he calls them snakes and broods of vipers. I don't know if we'll get to snakes and brood of vipers tonight, but let me just remind you that when John the Baptist (laughs) called the Pharisees that, um, I think I told you that this was... um, uh, uh, offspring of snakes was not, <laughs> well, what can I say that's appropriate for such a sanctified audience? Um, this was not a nice thing to say to people, okay? Because if you are a brood of vipers, then what's your mother? Your mother's a viper, okay? So this is as insulting as it gets, all right? And so Jesus does what we could call some sanctified name-calling, all right? Now, the pattern that we see with the seven woes goes like this. They're grouped in pairs. So there's, there's two woes that are uh, matched together, then two woes that are matched together, two woes that are matched together, and then there is the final woe. So it goes two plus two plus two plus one, which is actually also a prophetic formula that we see sometimes 
in the prophets. And then after Jesus completes the seven woes, then he excoriates in verses 34 to 36 the guilt of the leaders and then talks about coming judgment. And then verses 37 to 39, there's a lament uh, over Jerusalem, which is a real lament. And then predicts the coming judgment of the desolation of Jerusalem. So, as we look at this, what's really easy to do is to look at each one of these proclamations. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. And think to ourselves, those rotten scribes and Pharisees. Those rotten hypocrites. They were really, really awful people. But we would make a huge mistake if all we did was look at this passage as if this was about them. We need to remember that as we read this passage, as we study this passage, we're supposed to ask, where are we? Does this describe us? We need to make sure that just as Jesus reminds us in the Sermon on the Mount, that before we go try to take the speck out of somebody else's eye, we need to pull the log out of our own, and we need to even apply such a harsh passage as this to ourselves first. A very dear friend of mine said, I really want to believe I'm a recovering Pharisee. Before we dig in, the reality is, is that there's, there's a Pharisee inside of all of us. Whether you like it or not, there's a Pharisee inside all of us. And so, may God actually give us eyes to see that we wouldn't be blind, but that we would see how God's word applies to us. So right out of the gate, Jesus begins with, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, verse 13, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. For you yourselves do not enter, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. And uh, Craig Keener says of this, Woe, it's religious leaders can do more harm than good. What Jesus says in this first woe is he gives the declaration of, of, of judgment, woe. He addresses the scribes and the Pharisees with this formula, and then he addresses them directly as hypocrites. And what's going to happen is through each one of these woes, we're going to see the utter hypocrisy that is here. And so in this particular woe, what Jesus identifies is that the Pharisees and the scribes end up locking people out of the kingdom of heaven. And they end up locking people out of the kingdom of heaven under the guise of opening up the kingdom of heaven. 
As, as they went around teaching, as they went around instructing God's people, um, it was through their teaching that they supposedly had, as it were, the keys of the kingdom. And Jesus says, you're not opening up the kingdom to anybody. You're actually locking the kingdom and shutting it up so that people don't enter. Now, in one sense, we could certainly say that the self-righteousness and the legalism of the Pharisees and the scribes was uh, certainly a way in which they were shutting people off from entering into the kingdom. Because that's not how you enter the kingdom. You can't enter the kingdom as a self-righteous person. You can't enter the kingdom as a legalist. And yet the, the teaching of the doctrine of the scribes and the Pharisees was was filled with legalism and self-righteousness. And in that sense, they were in fact cutting off the kingdom from those that they were teaching. But there's probably something far more significant even than that, and that is in their own failure to acknowledge Christ. And in their own effort to try to get others to refuse to acknowledge Christ, they were truly cutting off the kingdom from those that would listen to them, but they also were not entering themselves. The very people that, that, that the general population held up to, in a sense, be, um, if anybody's going to enter the kingdom, it's got to be these guys. Right? This is the mentality. Jesus says, you yourselves are not even entering because of the very condition of your heart and because of your refusal to acknowledge me as the Christ. And insofar as you refuse to embrace Christ and insofar as you continue to point people away from Christ, you're not only shutting others out of the kingdom, but you yourselves aren't entering. The scribes and the Pharisees were not pointing people to Christ. Who were they pointing people to? Themselves. Themselves. This is, this is one of the sure marks of a false teacher. The false teacher sets himself up as absolutely indispensable in the plan of God. The false teacher sets himself up in in a position of you can't understand God, you can't know his word, you can't uh, enter into the kingdom unless you listen to me. And so here were the scribes and the Pharisees, and they refused to point people to Christ, but they loved pointing people to themselves. You think that happens today? It happens all the time today. Verse 14, if you have the ESV, um, I know it's not there in the NIV. Verse 14 is, um, is not original to Mark. It's probably a harmonizing of, of both, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Matthew. It's a harmonizing of Mark 12:40 and Luke 20:47, which are parallel passages. And you need to remember, it's oftentimes one of the most frequent um, textual errors that we have in the Gospels is when a scribe would actually try to harmonize the Gospels together. And, uh, and so, verse 14 is, is rightly uh, left out. So, verse 15, 
Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much of a son of hell as yourself. So you see actually how these first two woes fit together, right? You shut people out of the kingdom. You yourselves aren't entering. And yet what you do is you make these incredibly heroic efforts to make converts. In fact, you will get on a boat and travel across the sea. You will walk across the desert, all for the sake of making one single solitary convert. Great heroic missionary endeavor on your part. Great fervor to win people to Phariseeism. But the end result is that you make them twice as much of a son of hell as yourselves. This is why they are shutting people out of the kingdom. It's very interesting to me that Disciples are often more radical than their teachers. You ever notice that? Disciples are often more radical than their teachers, often more extreme than their teachers. And so here were the Pharisees and the scribes, fervent for the traditions of the fathers and fervent for self-righteousness. And yet what they ended up doing is as they, as they created converts through their heroic missionary effort, all they did was create those who would not only mimic their errors, but accentuate their errors. Jesus says this in the strongest of language. They become sons of Gehenna. That is destined for hell. What we have here is not Jesus addressing thieves and prostitutes. and He's addressing religious people. He's addressing people that crossed their T's and dotted their I's, apparently in all the right ways. There's, there is no doubt a, uh, a sincerity among those that are so utterly devoted. And yet Jesus says here very clearly that you're making your converts twice as much of sons of Gehenna as yourselves. Then in the lengthiest woe, we have verse, starting verse 16... Woe to you blind guides who say, and then Jesus gives us a series of of oaths. Now again, blind guides, remember, they're the teachers of the people. They're the ones that the people look up to. Jesus says you're actually blind guides. Now this is something that he's already said in the Gospels, right? And in fact, if you follow a blind guide, guess what happens? You both end up in the ditch. And so here, Jesus begins by bringing out one of their um, most significant and obvious areas of hypocrisy, and that was in the whole area of, of making oaths. Now, remember, making an oath or swearing is actually an Old Testament act of worship, right? In fact, God's people are commanded to swear by his name. 
Okay? And so th- there's, there's, there's um, a sense in which that is a part of Old Testament religion, but just like so much of the Old Testament, the scribes and the Pharisees actually didn't think about what it meant to really keep the spirit of the law and to do that in a, in a way that honored God. What they were constantly doing is they were constantly figuring out how in the world could they, could they create hedges and then, and then circumvent law so that they could do something that the Bible told them to do, but then do it in a way so that if they didn't do it right, they wouldn't be condemned. And so Jesus' example is, you say, whoever swears by the temple, well, that's nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. Now, this is actually true. And in in rabbinic literature, you have discussions over why swearing by gold is actually, uh, actually obligates you, whereas swearing by the temple doesn't. It's because you could put a lien on the gold that was in the temple. You couldn't put a lien on the temple itself. And so they figured, you know what? You can... You can swear by the temple, but if you swear by the temple, that's not really as important as if you swear by the gold in the temple. By the way, and there was a lot of gold in the temple. Lots and lots and lots of gold in the temple. And so you could imagine, I mean, think about how people, think about how people would have thought about this. You see, a lot of times, um, religious leaders do not always think about how the people that hear them end up taking what they say. So, for instance, just, to, just as, uh, as, as an example, um, there are certain traditions, and I'm not talking about Roman Catholic traditions, there are certain Protestant traditions that practice uh, infant baptism, and so let's just take Lutheranism for an example. Well, if I talk to a Lutheran pastor, a conservative Lutheran pastor, there would be a sense in which they would say something like that there is, um, uh, there's a miracle that takes place in baptism, but that in and of itself does not necessarily secure the salvation of that child because what it may do is it may put them on the train track of salvation, but they need to press ahead and so forth. Now, you could have all of the theological nuancing that you want from a Lutheran view of baptism, but for the average Lutheran in the pew, does baptizing that baby save that baby? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so there's the religious leaders who have their thoughts up here, and then there's the way that it gets translated down here. So the scribes and the Pharisees, um, some of the commentators think that they actually were opposed to people abusing oaths, and so they were trying to try to teach the people how to make distinctions in oaths. And so they would say, now, if you make an oath, but you swear by the temple, that's not really as binding as if you swear by the gold in the temple. So how do you think People are going to hear that. People are going to hear that like this. 
What an excellent loophole. What an excellent loophole. I can actually swear, which I'm supposed to do according to the Old Testament, and, but if I do it by the temple, which still sounds really good, I swear by the temple. That sounds really good, but if I don't really mean it, I can swear by the temple. But if I really mean it, then I can swear by the gold that's in the temple. So what are you teaching the people to do? You're teaching the people to lie. Whether purposely or non-purposely, unpurposely, unintentionally, okay? We just go with a different word altogether, okay? And so here Jesus says, this is what you do. You say, well, you can swear by this, but not by this, because, or you can swear by this and not really mean it, and then you can swear by this, but if you swear by this, then you got to really mean it. And so Jesus says, you fools and blind men. Now, why can Jesus call them fools? Because they absolutely were. They absolutely were. Remember, in the Bible, a fool, that that is not a statement that has to do with a person's intelligence, their IQ. It's a moral, it's a moral evaluation. And so Jesus says, you you actually are fools and you are blind. No spiritual perception whatsoever, no wisdom whatsoever. And then he turns around and he says, think about it, what's greater, the gold that's in the temple or the temple that sanctifies the gold? There's a simple logic that if you were actually wise and could see, you'd realize that making these kinds of distinctions is absolutely ridiculous. And then he says, verse 18, and whoever swears by the altar, well, that's nothing, but whoever swears by the offering that's on it, he's obligated. You blind men, what's more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Now, this is is really the crux of the issue right here. Therefore, whoever swears by the altar, he's swearing by everything that's on the altar, and the altar itself. And whoever swears by the temple is swearing both by the temple and by him who dwells in it. In other words, listen, there, there, there are no little loopholes for you. When, when you take an oath, when you swear... You can't try to figure out how can I do this in a way that I don't incur God's judgment because I don't really mean it. In fact, Jesus is making it very, very, very clear that such evasive oaths don't do anything except bring judgment because if you make an oath, you're making an oath by God himself, whether you say by the altar, whether you say by the temple, no matter what you say. Jesus actually addresses this in the Sermon on the Mount. Evasive oaths amounted to lying. Jesus says, 
Verse 22, whoever swears by heaven. You know, in the first century, you know what the word heaven was used for, don't you? Just circumlocution for God. It was a way to talk about God without God using God's name. Now, the, the tradition of using heaven in the place of God probably started out for pious reasons of not wanting to dare take God's name in vain. But the Jews were accustomed to now saying, I swear by heaven. And Jesus says, if you swear by heaven, you're swearing both by the throne of God and by the one who sits on it. In other words, what Jesus is getting at here is that he is trying to tell them, listen, what God really wants from you is God wants you to hallow his name, and you hallow his name by speaking truth and by being honest, and your hypocrisy is absolutely exposed by you trying to figure out how you can take oaths and not really mean it. All of these evasive oaths just like the kindergartner putting his hand behind his back and crossing his fingers saying, I promise. You ever do that as a kid? What, 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 what do we think we were doing? What well, was a way to say words that really meant something apparently and yet not really mean them? When it comes to dealing with God, we dare not say words that we don't mean. Now we get to tithing. Verse 23, woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. For you tithe dill, mint, and cumin... And you neglected the weightier things of the law. So here, the, 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 the Pharisees were famous for their tithing. They were absolutely meticulous tithers. Um, there are, again, believe it or not, there are long treatises among the rabbis as to whether or not you needed to actually tithe an herb or a spice. And there were certain schools of rabbinic thought that said, well, you don't actually have to tithe um, a spice, but you should have to tithe herbs. And, and then the other side just took the other side, probably just to be contrary. But here were the Pharisees, and, and the idea was is every single thing they got, they actually would be meticulous tithers. And Jesus says, here you are, and you're so meticulous. And so you, you go to the market, and you, you buy your dill, and your mint, and your cumin, and you come back, and you just, you're so careful just to parse out a tenth of it, and then, you know, Offer that up to the Lord, however that was done. Jesus says, here you are, meticulous and scrupulous in your tithing, and yet you've neglected the weightier matters of the law. This actually ought to teach us something here, and that is 
within the law, there are issues that are more central and more important. And here was the problem with the Pharisees. Notice this. They meticulously tithe, but they neglect the weightier matters of the law, namely justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. By the way, if they would have read the law, they would have realized that that was what was really important to God to begin with. What is it that God requires of his people over and over and over again? Hosea 6, 6, what does God require? He requires covenant fidelity on his people's part. What does God require? He has shown you, O oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. And tithing's not mentioned. What's mentioned? Justice, love justice, and mercy, and walk humbly with your God. In other words, there are weightier things the law, and Jesus says, here you are, you know, you've got your, you know, your, your, your magnifying glass, and, and the, you know, your little, little uh, you know, your little, uh, uh, what are the, the, the knife, the, uh, the knife that cuts real fine, no, not a scalpel, uh, Exacto knife, yeah, there you are, and you got your 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 magnifying glass and your exacto knife, and you're like, okay, one, and then you're just completely ignoring things like mercy and justice. But I got the cumin and faithfulness. And Jesus says, you you actually just completely neglect the more significant things of the law, which if you had wisdom and you could see, you would have seen that these are requirements in the law itself. And so here they were distorting the word of God, failing to see the more significant issues of the word of God in order to do what? In order to major on minors. And in so doing, they end up minoring on the majors. Now notice, Jesus does not criticize the meticulous practice itself. He says, these things you should have done without neglecting the others. He doesn't criticize them being meticulous tithers. What he criticizes is the place of importance that it played in their lives to the neglect of the things that really mattered. That's what he's criticizing. And then he says, you blind guides, you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Now, you know, I have absolutely no doubt, there's no doubt in my mind that as Jesus said that, everybody in the temple laughed. By the way, there's a play in word, on words um, uh, between camel and gnat in Aramaic. They sound almost exactly the same. Jesus presents such a humorous and yet indicting picture. So there you are, you have your bowl of soup. Now, why does Jesus use gnat? 
because the rabbis argued about this too. Did a gnat actually, in your drink or in your soup, make it unclean? And the general assumption was is that gnats did not make your food unclean. So you could eat a gnat and not be ceremonially unclean. All right? But who wants to eat a gnat? So here they were, and it's not that they were straining at the gnat because they didn't want to become unclean. They were straining at a gnat because who in the world wants to eat a gnat? In my tomato bisque, I don't want to take, you know, a a big spoonful and go, well, there's a gnat and just eat it anyway. And so here they are, and Jesus says, you're straining. You're straining at this gnat. God forbid you should swallow the gnat. So you strain at it. You, you go and you get, get your strainer and, and you make sure that you get it out. All the while, you're swallowing a camel, which was an unclean animal. You'll strain at a gnat that doesn't do anything. It's insignificant, and yet you will turn around and swallow a camel. Trifling over gnats while swallowing an extremely large, unclean, disgusting animal. That's just my personal opinion about camels. So again, majoring on minors and minoring on majors. We say to ourselves, we'd never do something like that. We most certainly do stuff like that. And we most certainly do it all the time. Understand that minors are not just irrelevant and insignificant. They're just minor compared to the majors. And so as Christians, we actually end up doing the very same kind of thing. Remember years ago when Robert Briggs came over to Sacramento to pastor Emmanuel Baptist Church, he called me on the phone one day. And they had been under a certain ministry for a number of years at that church. Robert came, uh, called me up and he said, Brother, you need to pray for me. He says, I've got people in this church that can tell you all about biblical domestic order, about the roles of husbands and wives and, and the roles of children, and they can talk to you about things that you've never heard of, like compunction. He says, but they don't even know The gospel. Is it important to teach on the roles of husbands and wives? And the answer is, of course. But here's, here's the thing. Let me just throw this in. We have to be careful that what we're actually teaching is Bible and not culture. Because a lot of... A lot of stuff that goes under the guise of biblical domestic order is far more cultural than it is biblical. And I actually have a deep abhorrence for it. 
Because what it does is people think that if I get, if I get these roles right or if I get this down, um, then I'm good. And then all the while missing things like forgiveness and justification and adoption. It can happen to us very easily. Ministries that just have two strings on their guitar and neither one of them are gospel strings. We need to be careful. We need to be careful. We need to actually be able to distinguish in our convictions what is actually a biblical conviction and what is a personal conviction that I've extrapolated from some idea somewhere. I'm not saying abandon all personal conviction, but I'm just saying don't go mixing what's a personal conviction for what's actually in the Bible. More on that later. Jesus then says, verse 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside, full of robbery and self-indulgence. Now, clean the outside of the cup. Again, believe it or not, there were extended rabbinic discussion over what constituted making a dish clean. One school of rabbis actually taught that the most important part of cleansing a vessel was making sure the outside was cleansed. Because, I mean, good grief, a a Gentile could have touched it. Others said, no, you actually need to do both the inside and the outside. And Jesus says, here you are, and you're clean, you clean the outside. Again, here, what's in view is this idea of this scrupulous washing of the vessels, which all of the uh, Pharisees would have been engaged in. We actually see this in other passages in the gospel records, right, where they make sure that they clean everything. And Jesus then takes that scrupulous ceremonial washing and then, in a sense, turns it into a metaphor. And and the idea is, is that that ritual cleansing is only external. It doesn't do anything for the heart. It is just simply ceremony. In fact, it's mere ceremony. And so you go and you do all of this cleaning on the outside, and the idea is, is that's all you're doing with your life. That's all you're doing with your life. And on the inside, you're full of greed and self-indulgence. In other words, there's there's this outward appearance that is is, uh, compliant with the ceremonial requirements, so it looks good on the outside. But Jesus says on the inside of the cup, you know what, you're just absolutely filled with a heart that has idols just pouring out of it, material and sensual appetites that just absolutely drive your life. In other words, you look really, really spiffy on the outside. 
really look like you've got your act together. But on the inside, you're a covetous, greedy, sensual, materialistic person. Now, look at verse 26. Does anybody notice anything peculiar about verse 26? Singular. You blind Pharisee. Well, all throughout so far, Jesus has had this in the plural. Woe to you, scribes, plural. Pharisees, plural. Blind guides, plural. Here, it now shifts to singular. You blind Pharisee. And and what is happening here is that the use of the singular has now a very, very strong, specific, individual force. He's no longer just addressing a group. He's now addressing the, the, the man. You blind Pharisee. First, clean the inside. And then the outside will be clean. In other words, focus on the weightier matters. Seek forgiveness. Take care of the heart. And as you do that, as you deal with what's on the inside, the outside, that which is seen by men, will take care of itself. Do you understand how how utterly dangerous it is to to have a a form of religion that is concerned primarily about how it appears to the people around you. This can, this can take so many different forms, and it can happen in virtually every branch of, of Christianity. You know, there, there's not one particular branch that's more prone to this than others. It just, it just looks different. The way this looks, for instance, among charismatics may be very different than the way it looks among Reformed people, but the fact is is that it's still there. Jesus says, take care of the heart, take care of the inside, take care of the things that really matter. Outside will take care of itself. Then we get to the sixth and... Sixth woe, which is coupled with the previous one and perhaps the most famous part of this. Verse 27, woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs which are on the outside, which appear on the outside beautiful, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now, whitewashed tombs, whitewashed sepulchers, right? Why whitewash a tomb? This was actually a custom, and it was not uh, primarily to beautify a tomb. It was actually done during festival processions, for instance, Passover, when people would be traveling to Jerusalem. What, what, would, what would actually make you unclean and disqualify you from observing Passover? Coming into contact with 
a dead body. Okay? So, again, according to the Pharisees, you didn't have to touch the dead body, but if you accidentally walked over somebody's tomb, you're out. So what they would do is they would whitewash the tombs so that people could see them, so that they could avoid becoming unclean during times of festival observance. And so in other words, it was a, it was a way to, um, to help them avoid being defiled. And so the whitewash not only warned, but then in a secondary sense, they did it in a way that tried to make the tomb kind of look pretty. And so it was warning against defilement, but doing it in a way that seemed to be appealing. And so here, this is exactly what the Pharisees were like. It was just this shallow covering of real defilement. The Pharisees took every measure to appear as if they were avoiding uncleanness. But Jesus says, here's the reality. On the outside, you look like one of those whitewashed tombs. And as the pilgrim walks by, he makes sure he kind of stays away from it a little bit. But he goes, boy, they sure did a nice job whitewashing that tomb. I hope that one of these days when I'm stuck in a tomb, somebody whitewashes my tomb as nicely as they whitewash that tomb. And Jesus says the reality is, is that you are acting like this is an act of of cleanness on the outside, but guess what, on the inside, you're absolutely chock full of dead men's bones, which, by the way, was Old Testament law, unclean, right? Couldn't touch a corpse, you're actually just, you are like overflowing with just dead people's bones. And all uncleanness. Jesus says that, by the way, just to make sure they get the point, right? Not just unclean because you've touched a corpse or something dead, but ceremonially unclean in every way conceivable. And then he says, on the outside, you look righteous. You see that? So you too, outwardly, you appear righteous. You appear like that whitewashed tomb. But inwardly, you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So Jesus is saying, listen, all of your all of your external scrupulous regulations, that's your whitewash. Don Carson says they appeared magnificently virtuous, but were actually contaminating people. Inside, you're full of hypocrisy. Well, this actually makes a really nice way to do the sixth woe bring in hypocrisy because scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. But what's probably the most significant thing about what Jesus says here is when he uses the word lawlessness. Does does the ESV have lawlessness? It's important that your Bible say lawlessness. Why? 
because these people thought they were great law keepers. And the reality is that they were lawless. And when, we, when you think of the biblical sense of being lawless, you need to understand that lawlessness is actually violation, pure violation of the revealed will of God. Sin is lawlessness, says John. And so here, these guys, they touted themselves as the great law keepers. They touted themselves as the great, as the great law guardians. And Jesus says, you are not only not a guardian of the law, you're not only not a keeper of the law, you are an absolute abject breaker of the law. Again, this is why they locked men out of the kingdom and they themselves did not enter. Well, we're going to look at the seventh woe next week. But I think six are enough for tonight. Here's the thing that we should remember is we all, every single one of us, need to guard against this kind of pharisaical hypocrisy. I was thinking of doing a little monologue, you might be a pharisaical hypocrite if. I'll forego, but you need to think about it. Because you you know what we do? Because we're good Christians, the last thing that we do is think that we're Pharisees. Because to us, Pharisee is equivalent to hypocrite, which of course Jesus sets that up for us. That's why we think that. And, And it's true. But what we think is There are Pharisees over there. We're not Pharisees. And the fact is is that we need to guard our hearts against this kind of Pharisaical hypocrisy. We can do it as parents. If you're more concerned about what people think of you when they see your kids, you're probably a Pharisee. Did you hear me? If you're more concerned about what people think of you when they see your kids, probably a Pharisee. If you're more concerned about putting on airs of what your marriage is supposed to be like, when the reality is is that the air is so far away from the truth, You're Pharisee. If you think that the most important thing that people know about you is how many books you've read, probably Pharisee. The minute that we become more concerned about the external more concerned about appearance 
Do people think I'm a good this? Do people think I'm a good that? When we become so concerned about what people think instead of what we really are, then we are on the high road of pharisaical hypocrisy. J.C. Ryle said, whatever we are in our religion, let us resolve never to wear a cloak. Let us by all means be honest and real. And you know what that means? That means that our biggest challenge is typically on the Lord's Day. Because we come into this place and we want people to think we've got our act together. And we're not honest enough with anybody, including ourselves, so that nobody thinks different. When we understand grace, and we understand the grace of the gospel, you realize you don't have anything to protect anymore because you realize you have nothing worth protecting. Oh, my goodness. I had no idea Charlie was such a sinner. You know what? I think Charlie revels in being a sinner because it means he can revel in having a Savior, right? And so guess what? Uh, You don't have any perfect pastors. Present company included. In fact, all that your pastors are, are sinners saved by grace. That's all. Really. That's all. You are nothing more than a sinner saved by grace. And so if you think that your dour expressions are going to make people go, oh, he's so serious, he must be Jonathan Edwards reincarnated. Think a pious exterior is going to make people go, wow, that's holy. You're just wrong. Grace actually levels us all, doesn't it? Grace actually just says, listen, you can afford to be yourself. You can afford to let people know you as you know you. Now, you might not want everybody to know you as you know you. (laughs) <laughs> but it is, it is an absolutely liberating thing when you don't have to pretend to be something that you're not. Okay. So, we're imperfect pastors. I'm an imperfect pastor. I'm a sinner. In fact, sometimes I'm not even a very good pastor. In fact, sometimes I'm not even a very good parent. And in fact, sometimes I'm not even a very good husband. And in fact, sometimes, and the list goes on and on. But I have a great Savior. And so, brothers and sisters, 
let us not put a cloak around any part of our profession of faith. Let us be on the outside what we are on the inside. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to do what Jesus taught us in last week's passage, and that is to humble ourselves, to be humble people. And we pray that we would embrace humility because we've embraced grace. And we pray that you would help us to never put a cloak around our faith. And we pray that you would also help us not to be critical and judgmental of people that we don't think have their act together as well as we do. Father, we pray that we would be a a happy assembly of justified sinners, not some phony fellowship of the pious. We pray that you give us the grace to do that In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. To receive a copy of this or other messages, call us at area code 775-782-6516 or visit our website, gracenevada.com. The views expressed on this program are those of the guests and not necessarily the views of management and staff of OBS Radio, OBS International, and Greater Works Business Services. Guests who appear on this podcast are not required to pay a fee and is made possible by RadioGuestList.com. For more information, please visit our website at www.obsintl.cf. Follow OBS on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash broadcast section. If you want to contribute financially to help us continue broadcasting, please go to paypal.me.obsintl. Thanks for tuning in. We will see you next time. This is OBS Radio, a service of OBS International, a division of Greater Works Business Services.